Hey guys, it's Ryan. Thanks for tuning into Theology-ish. Before we jump in, I just want to emphasize that the discussions on this podcast are exploratory in nature and delve into a variety of theological perspectives. They do not strictly represent or define our personal stances on the faith nor the doctrine of our affiliated churches. We encourage listeners to reflect, question, and seek guidance from their local church leaders. Our goal is to foster understanding and curiosity. We ask that you listen with a humble and discerning mind. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Theology-ish, a podcast all about theology, church history, biblical studies, uh, maybe philosophy one day, and whatever the heck else we feel like talking about, because it's our podcast. My name is Ryan, and I am joined today, as always, by William. Hey. Hey, girl. Hey. Hey, girl, hey. Hey. So, yeah, I'm William. He's Ryan. This is Theology-ish. Thank you for tuning in. Today is a special day, Ryan. It is, and I know you're really looking forward to this I, one. I am looking forward to this one. Today... We are going to talk about patristic literature. Patristic literature, which is a fancy way of saying the writings of the church from the first roughly 500 years. And not only are we talking about it, we're going to talk about why you should also read it. Yeah, or why some people might be interested in reading it. Uh, So, first off, the patristic era it's roughly the first 500 years depending on who you ask it might end around 590 with the death of gregory the great or in the latin west they say that it ends sometime around 700 something with the death of some particular saint and scholar and the eastern the greek east says that it ends sometime in the 640s with the death of some other guy. So, you know, roughly that period, I'm going to just say between year zero and 500, because that's basically the period of the ancient history. Beyond Not, once we get into the 500s, then that's uh, the early medieval period. So. Not only that, you do see a significant shift in writing style and subject matter after after a minute there um when you start getting into the apologists and stuff like that and you kind of i don't know you could argue that maybe that it's still patristic but in nature it's very different yeah the, i mean the so the apologists are part of the patristic tradition because in the first 500 years we have several different uh generations of authors the apostolic fathers the apostolic fathers are the first generation so that's the people immediately following the new testament church and they last until about the year 150 or so because after 150 or so they're all dead womp womp so sad so sad then in 150 ish Onward, we get into the apologist period where the church starts talking about um, why you should convert and also not kill us. 
oh, so it, the apologists weren't a bunch of people who were apologizing for being no, Christian? No, these were not oh. Canadians. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, these were folks. I'm so sorry, Canada. You know, I've looked at our analytics, and we do have a recurring viewer in Canada somewhere. What? Yeah. Shout out to you, Canadian boy. I don't know. Like, look, I don't sweet. know who you are or how you found us, but shout out to this Canadian because they've listened to every episode. We have a fan. We're international hits. Yeah. High so, five, uh, bro. Like, sweet. Uh, sorry to the Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sorry because I'm American. I'll have to show you after this. Yeah, I'd be interested. Anyway, so we have the apologists. That starts around the year 150 and goes on for all of time because we never stopped trying to convert people. Nor should we. Yeah. After the apologists, we get the catechesists who are not particularly technical in their theology, but they're interested in um, helping those who have converted to become better Christians. So they, with the... uh, uh, apostolic fathers I think it's fair to say that they write to people that they assume are mature Christians would you say that's fair you've read all yeah, the apostolic I, fathers I have read the entirety of their works that we that we have access to <clears throat> excuse me um yeah off the top of my head I can't think of any of them that were specifically trying to reach a not church body yeah they're not they're they're all writing to uh people that they assume are are relatively spiritually mature, right? Except Diognetus. The Di- epistle to Diognetus, the way it's written seems as if it's being written to someone who is interested in the faith, but yeah, so hasn't the, converted. The epistle of Diognetus, or to Diognetus, to Diognetus, that is often published with apostolic fathers, but it really doesn't belong because it's a work of apologetics, and we don't know who it's by, it it gets published with the Apostolic Fathers because it's eight pages and you can't publish it on its own. Yes, uh, but the rest of them, which we know are of the Apostolic Father period, are all are all written to an audience that they assume already know things about church, yeah, about and, the faith. And then when we get to the apologist period, they're writing to people who are not converted at all. You recently read some stuff by Justin Martyr. Sure did. And he's super basic. He doesn't go super in-depth with stuff. He kind of glosses over certain things and talks about other things that you might not expect him to spend a lot of time on, but he's talking to people who aren't Christians. So he... St- Stays pretty surface level, right? He answers some some questions too that are different. He answers some some questions that I think we ought to talk about more today, like uh, in his second apology when he has a whole section dedicated to why don't the Christians just kill themselves? Yeah, which uh, is a debate you see today sometimes. Like you know, well, what happens to the Christian who commits suicide? What what happens? What happens when a Christian unalives themselves? Um, I find it interesting that he was answering questions like that back then, though. Yes, it, it is uh, It is interesting, but it's different than the su- sort of things that the Apostolic Fathers are writing. Yes. It's very different in tone, very different in subject The matter. Apostolic Fathers were much more interested and much more focused on correcting the existing church body and the fallacies they were committing. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair way to put it. So, after the Apologist, we get the Catechist. Catechismists, 
who are writing catechisms. Catechismists. Catechismists. Yes, thank you. Um, and they're benefiting from the work the apologists have done and now trying to lay out basic Christian doctrine for recent converts. So that starts around the year 200 or so and goes until around the year 300 or so. And those are those are some really winsome and lovely writings if you're ever interested in a suggestion for those. Shoot us an email at theologyish at gmail.com. And we one will, of these days someone will email us. Yeah, it's true. I hope we get one. And maybe the Canadian guy? Canada. Shout out to our Canadian friend. Canada man, Captain Canada, <laughs> Mr. Maple Leaf. I swear, if after this episode we get an email from an email address titled Can- Canada Man at gmail.com or like uh, I hope. Canadian man, I'm gonna laugh so bad. <laughs> I hope. I hope so much. <laughs> anyway, after the catechists, we get the conciliarists. That's a word. Yeah. And the conciliarists are those who have the councils. So you've probably heard of the church councils, of which there were seven. There were more later, but... Council of Nicaea. Council of Nicaea, Chalcedon, Ephesus. Council uh, of Jerusalem. That one doesn't count. Really? Yeah. Even though it's the Jerusalem Council. Yeah, because it... Huh. We don't 100% sure know if it happened, and we don't have any, like, meeting notes or debates or uh, attendance for that. guess that depends on your opinion about the Didache, I suppose. Well, if... Yeah, and... If it is yeah. by that. Anyway, go back and listen to our Didache episode if you haven't. Shout out. <laughs> yeah, to ourselves. Yeah. Anyway, so we have all the councils that happen, and these authors are very, very technical. So we have them writing in the clearest terms possible things about, like, the Trinity, because— we have heretics who are creating problems at this point in history, and now we have to meet together and decide what the best way to articulate the divinity of Christ is, because there are people saying he is not divine. And that creates problems for the church, right? So these are the the different uh, ways that you can kind of cut up the patristic period. You have the apostolic fathers, the apologists, the catechists, catechists, and the conciliarists. Catechists. That's the word I'm looking for. Catechists. Catechists. Those are the things that you can divide this up into. Um, and depending on which period we're looking at, we might have more literature than anyone could possibly read in their entire life if they dedicated themselves to it, or we might have very little. In front of us on the desk here, we have a collection called Early Christian Writings, which Man, is... we've shouted this book out like so many times already. Yeah, it's it's a Penguin's Classics uh, publication. Publication. It's translated by Maxwell Staniforth. Yep. It's a very good uh, little thing. You can get it for less than $20. I highly suggest you get one. It has the entirety of the Apostolic Father's works in it. Well, right? most of them. It, most of them? It's missing the Shepherd of Hermas. Yes. Um, yes, that's and true. And then there are 
a few things that might be apostolic fathers, might not. It's debated. We're not sure. It pretty much has all of them. It's most of them. Um, and it's very little. It's less than 200 pages. And then when we get into the catechists, there's a particular gentleman named Origen of Alexandria. Ah, I know this guy. Yeah. Origen of Alexandria wrote over 6,000 individual works that we know about. And he was writing around 280 or so. And he wrote over 6,000 individual documents. Some of them are very long, like 500-plus pages long. Now, I don't know about you, William, but I don't think I could write 6,000 individual works in what's left of my lifetime, let alone good ones. Because, man, maybe I could write 6,000, but they would not be good because I'd just be spewing them out as quickly as possible because, wow, that's a lot to write. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> and but... what Origen said was good. And it was so good, in fact, that we still have a lot of it. Things don't make it 1,800 years if they're not any good. That's not... Yeah, I, <laughs> It doesn't make it through history majority, if it sucks. Majority of people today don't even write a book or a work and before the majority they die. of people shouldn't. Most people don't have anything worth And a worth lot saying. of the ones that do don't write anything valuable or good. Yeah, not something that's going to stick around for 1,800 years. Now, yeah. Origen had plenty of controversies surrounding him. He's been uh, decried and then allotted and then decried and then allotted and then people have said nasty things about him and then they've tried to get him sainted and then they've said nasty things about him again. So, you know, Origen, has, he's a mixed bag. Um, but... He was an extensive writer, right? Tertullian of Carthage, also an extensive writer. Others who were in that period. When we get into the um, the conciliarist period, in part because it's later and therefore we are closer in time to these people, we get like a Cambrian explosion of literature that has survived there is a lot of stuff from that period in the church history that hasn't even been translated into English yet, right? There, there's really there's significant amounts of works by the likes of John Chrysostom, and um, there's some stuff even by Origen that hasn't been translated yet. Just man, because you know there's limited demand for this kind of thing, um, which is a shame. It is a shame, but all of this literature out there, all this very good writings by very smart men and women who were very dedicated to Christ and dedicated to his church, they produced a lot of material, and a lot of it is really freaking good. Way better than, and I don't say this with any amount of uh, dislike or disdain, but way better than Max Lucado. He's a great guy, and he's a good writer, and I'm sorry, but Origin of Alexandria against Celsus is better than anything that Max Lucado's ever produced. Ignatius of Antioch was real good. 
Yeah, and you can read his st- stuff in one sitting. That book right there on the shelf behind you, Rediscover Church. Yes. Have you read it? Not yet. That's been on my read list. I've heard that it's so-so. I, I was given it for free by, by someone at church. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not trying to bag on it, but... Yeah. Irenaeus of Lyons against heresies is better. I'm going to bet... I, I would take a real bullet for this. Irenaeus of Lyons against heresies is probably way better than Rediscover Church by whoever that's by. Yeah, I've got a small collection of C.S. Lewis back there on the bookshelf. Love C.S. Lewis. Fantastic theologian and writer. Not as good as Polycarp. He's not Clement of Rome. Nope. And C.S. Lewis is great. And and wrote more than a lot of these authors did, actually. At least as far as the stuff that we know about. Yeah, and look, I'm I'm not saying this to like bag on modern authors, um, because there are some great modern authors. I love N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright's N.T. Wright's fantastic. He's a great theologian, a great biblical scholar. He does, he is a scholar's scholar. He's very thorough. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is less of a theologian per se, but exegete. I. He's a personal favorite of mine in in recent months. I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I, I've been on a, a G.K. Chesterton yep. kick lately. Yep. Um, he's great. And he's not Ambrose of Milan. And none of... And, not look, Irenaeus of Lyons. We're Protestants. <laughs> All right. As much as it might seem like we're Catholic, we swear we're Protestants. We're Protestants. And statistically, you're probably a Protestant, too. You Is might that not statistically? be. In America. Are there more Protestants than Catholics in America. and other sects? In America, yeah. Huh. In the U.S. of A., I don't know about the Canadian. More you know. The Canadian guy. Yeah, if you want to email us. Canadian base. <laughs> Canadian bra. Captain Maple Leaf. Or what What did Cap- I call him? Captain Canada. Captain Canada. That's what it was. <laughs> Captain Canadian. Anyway. Yeah. We're Protestants, all right? And Protestants are oftentimes uh, react with a little bit of fear about these old authors of the church. They're a little bit afraid that they're, quote-unquote, Catholic. But some of these dudes knew Jesus, dang it. I'm not going to throw this person under the bus, but I've got someone in my life right now who's who's got that exact thing going on there. They're seeing what I've been up to and the things that I said as a result of getting up to those. And he's like, hey, man, are you you turning Catholic on me? Are you going to have to have a chat? (laughs) No, we're not Catholic. It's just that these authors from the earliest church that was, the Church of the New Testament and shortly thereafter, they talked about things in a way that sounds Catholic. That that's just how it is. And uh, this is a uh, a conversation I had just this past Sunday with a friend at church, actually. But uh, your your wife, my sister, just pointed this out the other day as well. That there's such a stigma today between Protestants and Catholics, and it, it's it's probably this, due to the wars. Yeah, which the is, wars definitely didn't help. No, that's fair. But we've got this stigma that it's it's Protestants against the Catholics. 
that one of us is wrong and we've got to prove the other wrong and this is why. Why can't we just love each other, man? Why can't we just be brothers and sisters in Christ and agree to disagree about some stuff? You know, we can talk about it. But I, I say that to say the Catholics and the Protestants came from the same church, brother. They were one church and then they split and the Protestants took some of the stuff with them and the Catholics took some of the other stuff with them. If stuff that we say sounds Catholic, that's because the Catholics probably agree about some of that stuff, but they came from the same church. Yeah. Because that was how it was. And if we, as Protestants, we get a little bit antsy about some of this stuff, and it's fair. And some of it, perhaps, you should be a little bit antsy about. They're, like I said, Origin of Alexandria has some uh, stuff that in his writings that should make us a little feel a little squirrely, right? Maybe, yeah. And that's okay, right? It's okay that sometimes people who write 6,000 individual works within those 6,000 individual works have a few sections that are not quite perfect. That's fine. It happens, right? And I, I think that's a bit unfair, too, because for any Protestant especially to say that, oh, these, these old guys sound Catholic, and they said this thing, which I disagree with. You know who the Protestants really like, William? Ooh. Martin Luther. Yeah. Oh, Martin. You know what one of the one of the things we know about Martin Luther was? He was racist. He was racist. Um, <laughs> and sorry, but if you've got a problem with Irenaeus of Lyons, I've got some bad news about Martin Luther for you, and it's worse than what Irenaeus had to say. Yeah. Um. And I I understand the anxiety about patristic writings. But we are the same team, and a lot of things that we think, like as Protestants, we have this little motto of sola scriptori. Ah, yes. Which is scripture alone. Scripture alone. Scripture alone. And that's good. That's a nice thought. Um, but functionally, that's not really how we do it. Is it even can't be even those? So and I I will give one specific example of why those who are sola scriptori are not really sola scriptori. If you use the word Trinity, you are not sola scriptori because the word Trinity comes from Tertullian of Carthage, In Latin. and therefore it comes down the pipeline through church tradition. Right? We didn't listen to our last episode. We talk about that. Yeah, go back and listen to that on the Trinity. I mean, the Trinity is there within Holy Scripture, obviously, but the term itself, you owe to church tradition. And there are other things, too. That or we transubstantiation, owe. if you're Catholic, was not church tradition. The language didn't exist. Or the transubstantiation arguably was what yes. the church taught, but the but language The language trans- didn't exist. Yeah. The language doesn't come around until later, but that, that's that's a little different than 
A little bit, yeah. What? Anyway, so despite the fact that you might want to be Sola Scriptori, you probably aren't really, and you take things from church tradition without ever really realizing that they're coming down to you through church tradition. And Catholics like to say things sometimes. Well, say a thing. What's something Catholic-sounding, Ryan? Oh, man. You're putting me on the spot here, and I'm not Catholic. Um, uh, We should baptize babies. There we go. I was that's about real, to say that. Pedo-baptism is a good thing. All right, let's baptize babies. And you say to the Catholic person, well, Catholic friend, why do you say we should baptize babies? And they'll look at you and smile and go, church tradition. What they really mean by that is that Within the writings of the patristic authors, someone says, we should baptize babies. And they have their reasons for it, and they make arguments for it. And you can go and read what those arguments are. For your average Catholic person, church tradition is sufficient reason. And it ought to be sufficient reason, because we shouldn't expect that every single Catholic is a scholar of church history, any more than we should expect every single Protestant to be a scholar of biblical studies. That's ridiculous. So you have your beliefs that are either in the Bible or through church tradition, and we can go and look for them. You can go and read the patristics if you're interested in that and see what they have to say about paedobaptism or about transubstantiation or whatever else. And they're not always right. There are things that they say that I think are wrong. There are some things that St. Augustine says about suicide in particular that I find deeply troubling and incommiserate with the nature of God. I don't think that what he has to say about suicide is correct. Because he, he in particular because of the way he phrases some of the stuff, I, I, I take umbrage with it. But I can go and look at it. And if I were to talk to a Catholic person about what they believe happens to a suicide, they'd say, oh, well, church tradition says blah, 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 blah. And that really means St. Augustine said. So then I can go and read what St. Augustine said and evaluate it and decide if it's legitimate or not. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I mean, I even just uh, the other day was was doing a little research in my own time and happened to come across a statistic, and I don't know how accurate this is, so... Don't don't quote me on this as truth, but this uh, this statistic suggested that only like forty two ish percent of Catholics actually believe in transubstantiation. Yeah, and again, I don't know how true that is, so take that with a grain of salt. But that's what this this article suggested, which is interesting. But you know, they can say that's church tradition, and as much as I also kind of buy into that stuff, you know. Even if it was traditional, they didn't talk about it the way they do today. It was not tradition to call it transubstantiation and talk about it the way they do today. That was handed down by specific people in the Roman Catholic Church. That is not traditional or orthodox in the grand scheme of all of church history. You know, you don't see Clement of Rome talk about transubstantiation because that wasn't a word and they didn't have that kind of language right um so i i yeah i i get what you mean there 
there are certain things about that. And, you know, I want to say, too, that while in theory Sola Scriptori is great, in practice, I think that it is... What's the right word? Bad. Bad. (laughs) In that... If you leave people to scripture and scripture alone and leave them with it, what happens? Well, you kind of see what happens a little bit is the church splinters and splits and says, we interpret this differently than you. So there's the door. Go play with your friends. I'll play with mine. You're not my real dad. Um, And that's how we ended up with Catholics and Protestants and the 40-some thousand-odd denominations within Protestant church and all that great stuff. Um. Without people like the patristics, without people who are willing to sit down and literate what scripture actually means and how it ought to be interpreted, that's what we end up with. And granted, we ended up with that anyway. But it makes me think if we didn't have patristic literature, if we didn't have the people in the year 150 through 500 who were willing to sit down and talk about this stuff, how wrong would we have it now? How much worse would it be? We wouldn't even have a church anymore um, because Christianity would not have survived in a recognizable form if it were not for some of these authors like Basil of Caesarea and Gregory of Nazianzus and Gregory of Nyssa and John Chrysostom um, and uh, Maximus the Confessor. Without certain individuals who were men of particularly great faith and Polycarp. powerful intellects, we wouldn't have a recognizable church. Um, so, like, just real quick on Sola Scriptori, because I don't want all of our Protestant friends to be afraid that we're bagging on Holy Scripture or anything. Um, I want you to go to your pastor at whatever church you go to and ask him if he ever uses a commentary to help him prepare his sermons. Mine sure does. If your pastor uses a commentary to help him prepare his sermons, he is not sola scriptori. If your pastor ever quotes another scholar and what they had to say about scripture, it's not not sola scriptori. And that there you go. Like, I mean, I, I'm I'm being a little bit uncharitable here because sola scriptura is that scripture is sufficient, and you know you can be you could argue that oh well I'm saying that scripture is sufficient for all doctrine, but it's not like in opposition to that for me to use like a commentary or whatever. And I don't know, man, maybe not, but in the strictest sense. It's not sola scriptori if you're using other sources. And I'm sorry, but the sad reality about scripture is that it's really confusing. Enough so that... Speak for yourself, Pleblian. Oh, wow. I understand all of it perfectly. Jesus? (laughs) (laughs) I'd like, no, but you know... It was confusing enough that Jesus came along and to his own disciples said, you think you understand this? No, sorry, (laughs) better luck next time. It's really confusing, and sometimes it's extremely difficult to figure out what Scripture means when it says a thing. We need people 
who are capable and willing and faithful enough to sit down in good faith and tear through scripture and literate exactly what it means to the best of their ability. Because if we didn't, no one would understand any of it. And many patristic authors do exactly that. Many of them are just writing commentaries. Like, it it shouldn't make us as Protestants afraid to read a 1,300-year-old commentary on the Bible. That shouldn't make you afraid. You should be willing to do that. Um, And, you know, this is a little bit a pet project of mine just because I like patristics. It's, you know, my hobby horse. I I have found them to be immensely helpful in um, clarifying the language that I use when it comes to theological things. Um, If you go back and listen to our episode on theology, if you haven't—or not theology. Part one or two. (laughs) Our our episode on the Trinity. That's the one I meant to say. Yes. Uh, If you haven't listened to that yet, please go back and listen to it. Um, At— in part of that episode, Ryan asks me to articulate the Trinity, and I feel like I did a pretty good job. I was happy with it. Yeah, I did a pretty good job articulating the Trinity, which is really hard to do. And I did a pretty good job because I've been reading Basil of Caesarea lately, who wrote around 380-something. And he articulates the Trinity super well. And he doesn't just articulate it as a dogmatic proposition. He explains why it is the way that it is. He doesn't take it for granted that it is the case, although he does believe that it is the case. He walks you through it as a guide to show you how we know that the Trinity is. And the patristics all do that with bits of doctrine that we might take for granted or might assume as just dogmatic propositions without any evidence, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think the best part, too, is that it's not just about Scripture, but patristic authors, a lot of them also, especially the apostolic fathers, to the best of my knowledge, talk a lot about church tradition, and how we ought to practice doing church. Um, I think of the Didache. You should go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. The Didache is pretty much just like an eight-page long guide on how to how to church and how to do it well. And you know, Clement of Rome wrote to a couple of couple of different churches, right? Or was it just the one church multiple times? It was. It, it was the one church. Yes. There are other documents that claim to be by Clement of Rome. But they're not. But they're not. They're... Anyway, anyway. Clement, as well as Ignatius of Antioch, who wrote to a couple of churches, um, they talk about how they ought to be practicing their faith within the confines of church and how they should be doing church the proper way. And what that gives us is an insight to what was actually orthodox at the time and how they were practicing their faith. Without that, we wouldn't be able to determine what was actually orthodox to the first century church and therefore what was 
most closely associated to the New Testament church. Because the New Testament only tells us so much, right, about how the church was, how it ought to be practiced. And what's there is great, obviously, and we ought to listen to that. But what these apostolic father writings give us is further context to how they built up the New Testament church and where that left us. And how, if you read it and you you really look at it, and how we have strayed from that in the thousands of years following and how much our churches don't at all look like that anymore, for the most part, which is bad, perhaps. Yeah. But it gives us an insight to not only what they believed about Scripture, but how they were practicing it in the most closely related church to the New Testament church that we have documented. For an example, in the in the Didache, it talks about baptism and how you ought to baptize in running cold water. Unless you don't have running cold water, then you can use still still cold cold water. water. Unless you don't have still cold water, then you can use still warm water. Unless you don't have still warm water. In which case, pour it over their forehead three times. Yep, once in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, right? And Yeah. And so that gives us an idea of how baptism was being conducted in the church around the year 100, right? Because we don't get that in the writings of the New Testament. We don't, they don't talk about it. Um, and in, this is important stuff to know. Yeah, and it's helpful because, because if you don't know it, how how do you, A, know how to avoid the mistakes of the past, right? We A lot of this stuff is to look back and go, okay, what were these churches doing wrong and why did these authors have to correct them? That is an opportunity for us to do better and say, okay, they were doing this, which means we shouldn't do this. And like, how many times has the church fractured over beliefs about how we ought to baptize one another? Or how we ought to practice holy communion. Yeah, the church is splintered and fractured over these things time and time again, and it shouldn't. Because who cares if you're dunked in a river or a, a feed trough or whatever? Who cares if it's poured over your forehead? As long as you're baptized. Get baptized in a bathtub for all I care. It's fine. Yeah. Just do it. Get bat- Get Use whatever Listen to the water. baptism episode. Just do it. Yeah, dude, go do that if you haven't listened to that one. Anyway. Anyway. Um, it is profitable for us to know the history of where we came from, I think is my my big point there. Absolutely. And, and how do I want to say this? I don't know. You've got a very contemplative look on your face I, right I'm, now. It's because I'm contemplating. <clears throat> it's a good reason for that. <laughs> Thinking. The wheel is moving, but the hamster is dead. Got a hamster in there? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Well, not anymore. He's got a doctor I can guy. recommend you. <laughs> As Christians, we ought to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And my grandmother, who is now dead, God rest her soul, was in many ways my sister in Christ because she was a faithful Christian. I don't suppose that the Christians before her are not my brothers and sisters in Christ just because they were before her and are now dead. 
And I don't suppose that no matter how far back I reach through the church's history, that these other faithful Christians are not my brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is shameful that so many folk are willing and ready and gung-ho to disparage earlier Christians simply because they were earlier. And they look at the patristic authors and say, those guys are Catholic, and they decide that therefore that makes them not their brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's shameful, and they ought not relate to them that way. They, they should look to them as older siblings who might be able to teach them something. And I hate to tell you, but if the patristic authors were Catholic, then so were the disciples, and so was Jesus. And then maybe you ought to rethink uh, what you are if because you're not. Because <laughs> the things that the patristic authors literate are as a result of the teaching that they received directly from the disciples or, in some cases, Christ himself. Right? The, Clement was friends with Paul. <laughs> You know, Ignatius knew some of the disciples. These authors knew the people that knew Jesus. There's a... Polycarp was appointed to his position by John the Beloved. There's a story that suggests that Ignatius, I believe it was, may have sat on the lap of Christ as a child. Yeah, that uh, in the... That's not confirmed, granted, but... Yeah, no, that's... It's different. He, it's it, hearsay. It's a fun story. Yes. That he was one of the little children that Jesus says, bring the little children to me. Um, Regardless, if they are saying things that you deem to be Catholic, I've got bad news. They received all of that knowledge directly from the apostles, from Jesus. They're just literating what they were told by the disciples. Don't assume that just because something sounds Catholic inherently means it's wrong or bad and you shouldn't listen to and, it. And this doesn't mean that we can't be critical of it and that we can't uh, evaluate it for accuracy because sometimes, as much as I love and respect the patristic authors, sometimes they say things and I'm, I just don't buy it. I think Man, they're wrong. The the almost the entirety of the epistle of Barnabas comes to mind. Yeah, good chunk not, of that. It's like, ah, oh, geez. Not a great writing, in my opinion. There, there's a couple of good things in there. Don't get me wrong. For the most part, I don't much care for it. Yeah, epistle of Barnabas is like three out of ten. But Yeah, but don't just assume that it's wrong because it might sound Catholic in your opinion, and therefore it has to be wrong. And to be sure, not everyone needs to read the patristics. It might be beneficial for you to give them a go. Um, at the very least, I, I encourage all Christians to look into the Apostolic Fathers because they are, in particular, wonderful to read and very productive and challenging for the soul. If, But you don't have to read patristic authors. You can read your C.S. Lewis and your Dietrich Bonhoeffer and your G.K. Chesterton and whatever stuff Max Lucado is putting out. That's fine. You can read that. But ask yourself— I like Francis ask, Chan. Yeah, yeah. As you're reading it, ask yourself, will this survive 1,900 years? And if the answer is probably not— 
maybe look for something that would. Yeah, if it's not going to last that long, it's probably because it's not that good. You know, something we've talked about in a previous episode was how, you know, we, we've mentioned this in a couple episodes, actually, but there are different parts of the body of Christ and the way they function. And the hands not ought look at the feet and go, man, I wish I were the feet or ah, I wish the feet were more like me. We need people in the body with different functions for different reasons. For some people, as we've discussed in a previous episode, that's a more simple faith. People who have no interest in reading stuff like this or getting into theology or digging deep. And I envy you. Yeah, Sounds we, easy. We need people like that. <laughs> it is a functional part of the body, and it's there for a reason. We also need people like the patristics who were willing to sit down and say this stuff, and, and there's a reason it survived as long as it did. And we need people who are willing to read this stuff, pick it apart, and talk about why it is either good or not good, why it is or is not orthodox. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily us, because you and I are not scholars. I think you could agree with that sentiment. Nor do I necessarily wish to be. Um, but, you know, even for people like us who simply find value in reading it, and applying that to our personal lives and hopefully getting to share it a little bit, there's a need for that in the church body. There's a need for people like us willing to do even that much. There is a functional purpose for that within the body of Christ. So it, I believe it is foolish to, to discount that and just throw it out and say, nope, they're Catholic, don't like that, and completely diminish what it has to offer. Yeah, and it's, in the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Oh, Ecclesiastes. One of the my favorite books in the Old Testament. It's a good personally. one. There is nothing new under the sun. And if you, as a Christian, find yourself with a loved one who is questioning their faith— or you find yourself having a conversation with a friend who's an atheist, or any number of other things. Maybe you lost a loved one to a pandemic, and it was really difficult for you, and now you're trying to work through what that means for you and your relationship to God. I guarantee that your experience is certainly not new. There is nothing new under the sun. And the patristics went through everything that we are going through. And they answered the questions that you and your loved ones are asking. And they answered the questions well and definitively, and they did it 1,700 years ago. And if you have the cojones, because you have to have cojones to go into this, because these are daunting books, some of them. They are massive if you are willing to go in there and wade through it and look for the wisdom that your older siblings has put down on the page, then I truly and legitimately believe that it will help you in your walk with God, and it will help you help others in their walk with God. There's nothing that Richard Dawkins ever wrote that Origin of Alexandria didn't already answer well over a millennia before he was a gleam in his father's eye. 
And yet there are Christians who read Richard Dawkins and find themselves stumbling because there are not very many people who are willing to sit down with Origin of Alexandria's book against Celsus and read through it. But you should. Do it. Uh, and Go read it. This doesn't just apply to patristic literature either. I mean, think of like uh, Summa Theologica, which was written in the 1400s. 13, or 1200s, 13th century. Uh, this is published 1485. Yeah, I've got it right here. Oh, but Thomas Aquinas was died in like 12-something. He may have written it then. It was published in 1485. Hold on. Oh. I'm going to Google it. Maybe it uh, it is older than its publication date. Yeah, Aquinas died in 1274. I guess it was just published later then. Oh, all right. Well, either way, it was published go. in 1485, written in probably the 1200s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, either way... Summa Theologica is massive. Oh, jeez. It's 3,000-something pages. It is multiple books. It It's big. Big old boy. How many people do you know that are willing to sit down and read <laughs> Summa Theologica, William? I, I have, don't know that I have ever met anyone who's read the Summa. Would church exist today as it does without Summa Theologica, William? No, it wouldn't. Especially not the Catholic Church. And that's exactly my point. Without people willing to do this and read this stuff, the church doesn't exist. Not in the way it does. It would be a completely unrecognizable entity. Because it is because of people willing to read Summa Theologica and pick it apart theologically that we have the church as it is today. I mean, mercifully, you don't even have to pick about apart the Summa Theologica because it's picking apart everything else. Yes, but it's, it's the same thing with patristic literature or anything else in our history is if we don't have people willing to sit down and read this crap, there is no modern church in the way we understand it or recognize it. Yeah, and here I'll, I'll give one more practical example of how patristic literature is helpful and reading it can help you as a Christian, and then we'll, we'll close out here. Um, there was once a fellow whose name was Simon Magus. And Simon Magus, or Magus, however you pronounce it, I don't know. It's one of those. One of those. He's mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, you might be familiar with him for the thing called simony, where you try to buy church office. Yes. Yeah. Peter, he tries to buy the Holy Spirit from him. Peter's like, oh, that's dumb. That's not how this works. And then Simon converts, and that's the end of the story. Except it's not, because authors in the late 1st and early 2nd century, Christian authors, talk about him a lot. And they talk about how after he converts, he ends up lapsing, and going back to doing magic and stuff. Justin Martyr talks about that. Justin Martyr does talk about Simon Magus briefly. Simon Magus, through his magical shenanigans, ends up claiming to actually be Jesus. And he has a wife, who used to be a prostitute, who he claims is Mary Magdalene. He also claims that they are Zeus and Aphrodite and 
Jupiter and whatever his wife is. And also Osiris and Isis from the Egyptian mythology. He claims that they are the reincarnation of all of these different gods. And we have church authors from the patristic period who talk about this. And they answer why that's nonsense. And you can throw a rock and hit a cult leader who says the same freaking thing. They're, they're, it's so common for like weirdo cult leaders to say that they are Jupiter and Osiris and Zeus and also Jesus and also they're John the Baptist. And they, they say the same kinds of stuff. It's been 2,000 years and they haven't changed their playbook. So why in 2,000 years have Christians tried to change theirs? If the heretics are all saying the same things, we should be saying the same things too. Don't throw your back out trying to reinvent the wheel. Irenaeus of Lyons, he's already got you covered, brother. Just read what he has to say and and take that and apply it to whatever heretic you're dealing with. Not only that, were it not for these authors... We never would have known about his magical shenanigans that he got up to after relapsing and becoming a cult leader. As far as we would have been concerned, Scripture said that he converted, and that would have been that. We would have assumed this guy converted and happy ending. Yeah, we might have St. Simon Magus. But no, No. it's because of the, the dutiful work of pious men like the Apostolic Fathers and like Justin Martyr, who sat down and wrote this stuff, that we know better. We we wouldn't know that otherwise. It's true. And so g- give, give patristics a chance. If you would like a suggestion for what patristic author you ought to read and perhaps uh, give us a brief blurb about what you're going through, you can shoot us an email at theologyish at gmail.com, or, and we will give you a patristic thing to read that might be relevant to what you're going through. Or if you're on YouTube, leave a comment and do that there, and we'll respond to you there as well. Heck yeah, let it, just l- let us know. Yeah, um, and if you can stomach it, read Summa Theologica. Oh man, good I, luck. I will buy you a beer if you do that. Um, <laughs> Dude, just a just a copy of it on Amazon is like $300. Yeah, they're super expensive. I have an abridged version. Yeah. And it's have you like read it? 800 pages and I have not read it because <laughs> oof. Maybe you should. Wolf. Someday. Yeah, someday. Anyway, thanks for listening. Uh I just wanted to rant about patristic authors for a little bit and, and- talk about how much I like them. Yeah, I feel like I got a little more defensive there than I was anticipating, honestly. You did get a little defensive. Which is shocking. You feeling defensive, man? A little bit, yeah. I wasn't expecting that, but I I felt like that was pretty productive. All right, well, thank you for listening. I hope that this was informative to you. I hope that you enjoyed it, and if please uh, like, comment, subscribe, share share us with a friend. He said share at the same time. And it's almost like we're you, sharing uh, the word share. Yeah. Yeah. If you happen to be Captain Canada, please email us. We'd love to talk please. to you. I, I need to know how you found us, man. Because <laughs> as far as I know, our main listeners are like my mom. Uh, and, and some of the leadership at my church. And that's it. Those are our fans. And, and us. Your grandpa. 
My grandpa. Grandpa listens. He sure does. Actually, I'm lying about my mom listening. My mom does not listen. Dude, my own wife doesn't even listen. Neither does yours. No, she doesn't. (laughs) So please, Captain Canada, email us. Email us, bro. I need to know how the heck you found out about us. Anyway, thank you all, and good evening. Have a good one. Thanks. Thanks.